Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and today we are starting a three-part series all about microphones. Now, I've obviously talked about microphones a lot in the past, but I don't think I have gone into enough detail to really answer the questions that many of you have about understanding arguably our most important tool as audio engineers. So in part one, we're going to be discussing a brief history of microphones and the basics of how microphones work. In part two, we're going to be discussing the common types of microphones, their pros and cons, how they work and how they're different, what they're good on, all the above. And in part three, we're going to be discussing myths and misconceptions about microphones and microphone technique. So without further ado, let's get started. You know, it may seem wild, but the idea of sound transmission took humankind thousands and thousands of years to even dream up. Part of this was due to the limitations of sound reproduction, because after all, if you can't hear the sound back, then what's the point of recording it? Obviously, we didn't really harness the power of electricity and put it to good use until the 1800s, so let's back up a little bit. In 1665, English physicist Robert Hooke was credited with creating the first cup and string telephone. You know what I'm talking about. You maybe have done this when you were a kid. You hook up a piece of string between two cups and you can talk to each other and hear each other through those cups based on the vibration in the string, which is a really simple concept. But it got people thinking, how could we do this for real? Is there a legitimate way that we could talk to each other over long distances? It wasn't really until the early 1800s when things started to pick up on this front. Charles Wheatstone was the first person to coin the phrase the microphone and was among the first scientists to recognize that sound was transmitted by waves through media, in water, in air, through solids, all the above. Now, he's also credited as creating and developing the very first telegraph, the Wheatstone telegraph. So he was trying to develop a device that could amplify weak sounds, much like the way a stethoscope worked, which he said he would call a microphone. Now, he ultimately never really got a finished product that was to his liking and never really came out with anything. In 1876, the very first microphone was created by Emil Berliner and Thomas Edison. Now, many people know of Thomas Edison and his many inventions, but very few people know about Emil Berliner, which is a bit sad. Now, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, yes, but Emil Berliner took the idea of the phonograph, which used a cylinder, and the graphophone, which is kind of like a music box that uses a metal disc with holes punched in it, and combined those into a single idea, the gramophone. The idea was to reproduce sound on a flat plastic disc. So essentially, Emil Berliner is ultimately responsible for vinyl records. That was his idea. And that, of course, has remained a standard for over 100 years. Now, Emil actually held the earliest patent for the microphone, which was later sold to the Bell Telephone Company for $50,000. That is a lot of money for the 1870s. That's something in the millions today. Now, Berliner's original patent was eventually overturned and awarded to Thomas Edison. 
But then there's also been some legal battle with the Bell Telephone Company. That's kind of a foggy history that I have not been able to find solid evidence on. Who actually holds the patent? Did Emil steal it? Did Edison steal it? Did somebody, you know, there's a lot of controversy around that topic. So do some Googling. If you find out more information on that, uh, let me know if you if you have any great information on exactly who has the patent now on the original microphone design. Now, Alexander Graham Bell was the first person to transmit the human voice, but he did not create the microphone used for the job. In 1878, just a few years after the Edison Berliner microphone, David Edward Hughes created the first carbon microphone. Now, this was the first major innovation in microphone technology, one that would immediately eclipse all designs that came before. The carbon microphone used loosely packed carbon granules between two metal plates. When the granules vibrated, they would create a charge. Quality was pretty bad, but it was a working microphone. These designs kind of laid the groundwork for the type of things we use today. These designs were improved many times over the years by many different inventors, but the general design was the standard for almost four decades. In 1916, a man named E.C. Wendt was working at Bell Laboratories. He was tasked with improving the quality of speech for telephones, but came up with something even more profound, the very first condenser microphone design. He patented this design, and even though microphones today have drastically improved, it's basically still the same format as the original. In the 1920s, broadcast radio became the most significant avenue for delivering news, radio, and music. The very first ribbon mic was developed by RCA for use in radio broadcasting in the 20s. Now, in 1920, George Neumann & Co. was founded, and around this time, he designed and sold the first commercially available condenser microphones. It's around 1923, some sources say later in the 20s, but it was in the 1920s. He drastically improved the sound of condenser microphones, creating a wider frequency response than ever before. Some people have said that it could capture frequencies between 50 hertz and 10K, which for that time, the 1920s, is crazy, right? We couldn't even really produce sounds that way, but theoretically, it could capture sounds at that broad of a bandwidth. His microphone soon became the standard for studio and broadcast use, and he continued to develop and improve them over the following decades. In 1931, Western Electric marketed its invention, the 618 Electrodynamic Transmitter, which is basically just a fancy way to say dynamic microphone, okay? This was credited as the very first dynamic microphone, the 618 Electrodynamic Transmitter from Western Electric. This design was very remedial and was constantly being revised, but nevertheless, it created the framework for modern dynamic microphones. Through the 1930s, there were huge innovations in the loudspeaker industry. Speaker technology was very limited at the time, but it did exist, and engineers quickly realized that you needed different sizes and types of speakers for different frequencies. The very first commercially available loudspeaker systems and PA systems came between 1930 and 1937. These systems used multiple speakers with crossovers to create a wider bandwidth than ever before. One of the most notable was the Shearer horn system produced by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, for use in movie theaters. Keep in mind, movies were exploding at this time. It was all the rage. Now, let's go back to Neumann. So Neumann microphones had become the studio and broadcast standard, and really they're 
still standards to this day, which is pretty wild, you know, a hundred years later. Over the 1920s and 1930s, Neumann improved his designs further, and people loved the microphones because they had the ability to make an instrument, a singer, or a speaker sound larger than life. Couple this with the recent loudspeaker technology developed by Jensen, Altec, and MGM, now you have the ability to amplify this larger-than-life sound for the first time in the late 1930s. It's not surprising, although unfortunate, why Adolf Hitler invested in the nicest Neumann microphones and the nicest large speaker systems so that he could amplify his voice as loud and clear as possible. Some people have theorized that had microphones and speakers of the day not been so good, had speaker technology not advanced, had microphone technology not advanced, Hitler's message to his followers might not have been so authoritative. And perhaps people would not have thought of him as being so commanding or powerful. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that it's the fault of any of these companies, uh, Jensen, Altec, MGM, or any of these companies, Neumann, but I find it fascinating that audio gear, just, you know, stuff for recording music and radio shows and making movies, played some role in the advancement of his goals. And it was new, and it was exciting, and it was confusing for people, and they, they were mesmerized by it because it was new technology. Of course, it led to a terrible vision war, the Holocaust, so many terrible things. But the fact that audio gear played some small role in that is really, really crazy and fascinating to me. Now, in 1947, the Neumann U47 was released. This microphone had arguably the most significant impact on studio microphone technology as it became the new benchmark for what a good microphone was supposed to sound like. It had an ultra-wide frequency response with a big low end, an extended top end, and it's still the most copied microphone in the world. And it's no wonder why. It sounds great. Okay, and this microphone is almost 80 years old. In the late 1950s, the very first designs and patents for wireless microphones were made by Raymond A. Litke, which is crazy to think about back in the 50s. People were already thinking of how to make things wireless. In 1953, a very talented engineer by the name of Ernie Sealer got a job working at the Shure Company. He worked tirelessly to create a new microphone that would ultimately change the world, the Shure Unidyne 3. Now, this microphone was released in 1959 and was the first unidirectional dynamic microphone designed to capture sound from the end rather than from the side. This changed the game for microphones, specifically dynamics. It became the foundation for the SM57, the SM58, which are the most used and most sold microphones in the world. In 1964, Bell Laboratories researchers James West and Gerhard Sessler patented the electroacoustic transducer a.k.a. the Electret microphone. These microphones were low-cost and small and are still used to this day. A lot of, like, measurement microphones use Electret elements, uh, telephones, all kinds of things like that. From the 1960s to today, microphones have continued to improve and innovation has never stopped. These inventors deserve to be recognized because of their massive contributions to music, television, film, and radio. Now, today, we mostly use three primary types of microphones, dynamic mics, ribbon mics, and condenser mics. We're going to get into the specifics on these later. But for the rest of this episode, I wanted to give you a brief rundown of how microphones work. All modern microphones work on the same basic principle. Sound comes in, it vibrates a component, and through one way or another, that sound is converted into an electrical signal. 
That means that all microphones are transducers. The term transducer refers to something that converts one type of energy to another. So usually this means variations in physical energy into electrical energy or vice versa. For example, speakers are also transducers as they convert electrical energy into physical energy. And so are LEDs that convert electrical into light energy or optical. These are some of the most common devices in modern times. We have transducers all around us at all times. So I figured one of the best ways for me to talk about how microphones work is to talk about some of the various parts and specifications in microphones. So number one, the diaphragm or element type. Primary element by which a microphone captures sound is arguably the largest contributor into how it sounds. Of course, we're talking about like a condenser capsule or a ribbon or a dynamic element here, okay? So anytime I'm talking about the element, I'm talking about the actual thing that is vibrating and capturing the sound and turning it into electrical energy. That's gonna be the biggest contributing factor. I mean, the difference between a dynamic mic and a ribbon mic is really vast. But it's more than just what element it is. So we're going to talk about some additional factors about the specifics. So say we just focus on one. Um, what about that element makes it different? So here are some factors at play. The type of materials used in the element, whether we're talking about a dynamic element, a condenser element, or a ribbon element. Since the element is vibrating, the type of material can drastically change how it vibrates. You know, think about the difference between a metal xylophone and a wooden marimba, or between a steel string guitar and a nylon string guitar. Okay, you can get drastically different types of vibrations based on the materials used. Now, most microphone elements are made from various types of plastic and metal. You also have the thickness of the element. So whether that's, again, a ribbon or, you know, a condenser capsule, any of those things. So Think about it almost like with drum heads or cymbals. Thicker things vibrate differently than thinner things. They can lead to totally different sounds. For example, a ribbon element that is three microns thick will likely sound much different than a ribbon element that is one micron thick. This will drastically impact the transient response and sensitivity. Another thing is the size of the diaphragm or element. That contributes a huge portion to the frequency response. Generally speaking, just like with speakers, again, transducers, the larger diaphragms have an easier time capturing low frequencies, but they may suffer at high frequencies. Maybe not. It just kind of depends on the design. Small diaphragms generally have an easier time capturing high frequencies, but may suffer at low frequencies. Again, not always. Small diaphragms generally have better off-axis response, but higher noise. Large diaphragm microphones generally have very low noise, but the off-axis response struggles. When I say off-axis, I mean not straight on the microphone, you know, maybe off at an angle, 45 degrees, 90 degrees. That sound is not as clear or pure on most large diaphragm microphones. Now, there are companies like Sankin, for example, that pride themselves on making microphones that do have great off-axis response and are large diaphragm. So, Again, these are all just general sort of observations. Another factor is the tension of the element. Again, whether this is a ribbon or a condenser, whatever. This is somewhat determined by the material used itself, but it's also manually tunable and adjustable. The best way to describe this is almost like a, a snare drum, okay? A smaller snare drum tuned lower versus a larger snare drum tuned higher, they're still totally different sounds. 
less tension is generally going to mean less sensitivity and less articulation, but more low end. More tension generally means better sensitivity and reproduction, but sometimes can lack in fullness or depth and can sometimes sound a little stiff or harsh. So all of these factors contribute greatly to the transient response, sensitivity, and frequency response of a microphone. Again, this is the type of element used, the thickness of the element, the material used in the element, the size of the element, and the tension of the element. Another microphone specification we need to talk about is the polar pattern. The polar pattern determines how microphones capture sound in three-dimensional space. It's very important to keep that in mind, that polar patterns are three-dimensional shapes. Polar patterns are mostly determined by the type of element used, how it's configured within the microphone body, and various phase differences between multiple elements within the same mic. For example, multi-pattern condenser microphones contain two diaphragms. It's possible to create polar patterns mechanically using precision devices to block sound from certain angles. That's a very complicated thing we won't get into. We typically observe five primary polar patterns. Number one, omnidirectional. This type of microphone picks up sound from all directions, barring a slight amount of rejection from the body of the microphone itself. Number two, figure eight or bidirectional. These microphones pick up sound from the front and the back, but reject from the sides very heavily. This is very common for ribbon microphones, and it makes sense why. Because of what a ribbon element is. A ribbon element is a very thin piece of metal, usually aluminum, that is cut to a few millimeters wide by a handful of centimeters long. But the thickness is in the micron range. One, two, three, or four microns is very common. So imagine looking at this element, okay? The surface area on the front and back is far greater than the surface area of the sides. So it makes sense that it would pick up more from the front and the back than it would from the sides. Also, there's magnets in the way that are holding the element. If you look up a picture of a ribbon element, you'll see what I'm talking about. Number three, cardioid. Now, cardioid microphones capture primarily from the front. This term comes from the Greek word cardia, meaning heart, and idios, meaning form or shape. So cardioid microphones pick up in a roughly heart-shaped pattern, primarily from the front, and they reject sounds from the rear. Now remember, this is a three-dimensional shape, so rather than looking like your traditional, like, valentine heart shape, it's almost like an apple, right? Like, if you imagine the stem uh, of an apple being the null, right? It's a it's a circle, but it has a three-dimensional null at one point, which is the rear. Now, you can think of a cardioid being like halfway between a figure eight and an omni. It picks up a lot of information in the front and very little in the back, but some on the sides, uh, more than a figure eight, but less than an omni. Number four and five are supercardioid and hypercardioid patterns, and these are like the steps between cardioid and figure eight. They mostly pick up the front, but a little from the back, and they reject a lot of the back rear side. These are less common, but still very useful. Now, there are a couple other polar patterns, like the line gradient pattern that you find in a shotgun microphone, or the hemispherical pattern found in PZM microphones, but we won't really get into those. They're kind of self-explanatory. You can look them up to see what I mean. It's also very important to understand that the polar pattern will change the tone. 
This is why on multi-pattern mics, they have to list the frequency response for each pattern. So it's not just about how it picks up, it's also about the tonality. Uh, and this is one reason why nine pattern mics, you know, the mics that have steps in between Omni, Cardioid, and Figure 8, are useful because one click off to the left or to the right can get you a little bit more mid-range or a little bit more high-end and only slightly change the actual three-dimensional pickup of the microphone. Generally speaking, given a certain sound for a cardioid pattern, an Omni version will have a little bit more highs and lows and way less proximity effect. And uh, it's typically a little bit flatter overall. But then a figure eight version of that microphone will have a little bit less highs, a little bit less lows, uh, more mid-range, but more proximity effect. So while we're on that topic, let's talk about proximity effect. Now, this is not generally a listed spec, but it's a very real factor in how a microphone sounds. Proximity effect is a phenomenon that occurs when a sound source gets close to a directional microphone. The low frequencies start to build up due to increased pressure, uh, more pressure actually hitting the element. Proximity effect starts roughly one meter away, uh, but it varies mic to mic. Omnidirectional microphones exhibit virtually no proximity effect, and figure eight microphones exhibit arguably the most. Cardioid microphones exhibit quite a bit, but not as much as most figure eight microphones. It's important to keep in mind that proximity effect is not inherently bad. And in fact, because microphone designers are fully aware that proximity effect exists, they consider it greatly when designing what the microphone is going to be used for and when deciding what features to put on the microphone and how the microphone should sound. For example, if they're designing a microphone that's intended to be used for close miking or, you know, live vocals or something like that, they might need to compensate a little bit for the increased proximity effect. But a microphone that's designed to be used as a distant mic or a room mic or whatever, they don't have to worry about that as much. In fact, they might need to boost some low end to make the microphone feel balanced. Okay, so microphone designers are well aware of proximity effect, and it's always a factor in their designs. It's also very important to realize that proximity effect is an acoustic phenomenon related to the sound source and the capsule design. So EQing it out is not really the same as adjusting the microphone position. It's not that simple. And in many cases, proximity effect is so early in the chain because it's actually affecting the element itself. If you have too much low end, it can end up distorting the circuit. It can end up distorting an output transformer of the microphone. It can overload the microphone. Uh, so it's not always something you can just EQ out, especially considering that that sound is then going to be amplified by a preamp. That sound will then have harmonic content unless it's a super, super clean preamp. You know, so proximity effect, you do have to consider when placing a microphone, choosing a microphone, deciding on how far away a singer should be, because it can drastically affect the signal down the line. The next specification I want to talk about is the max SPL handling of a microphone. Now, this is generally how loud before the microphone clips or distorts. It does not mean how loud before the microphone blows up and stops working. Now, I suppose for some microphones, the point where the element stops working or breaks 
could be close to the max SPL rating, but it's generally much higher. I mean, 6, 12, 18, 20 dB higher than the actual max SPL rating. It's also important to realize that the max SPL rating is generally given at 1 kilohertz. It would take dozens more decibels to do that same damage at 10K, but it might take a dozen less at 100 hertz. Okay, it's not a perfect figure either way. Most microphones have a max SPL between 100 and 150 dB SPL. Uh, so most minor, modern microphones, you're going to be fine. You're not going to hurt them with sound pressure level. I mean, I hear very few stories of people actually uh, damaging a microphone permanently via sound pressure level. Often it's from them dropping the microphone or it getting wet or it getting, you know, incorrect power to it or something like that. Very rarely are microphones blown up, modern microphones, I should say, by sheer sound pressure level. Now, you can do this to some degree on certain microphones, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. Another specification to talk about briefly is self-noise. Self-noise is noise created by the circuitry of the microphone, simply by being on. Most microphones have very low self-noise, especially large diaphragm condenser mics. We use something called A-weighting when listing these figures. Under 15 dBA is generally pretty quiet. Under 10 dBA would be classified as very quiet. Uh, between 15 and 20 dBA of self-noise is decent, but it might give you some problems when you're recording quieter instruments like finger-picked acoustic guitar, things like that. Over 20 dB of self-noise, the question begins to arise if it's really suitable for studio use. Most modern microphones are going to have a self-noise around 15 dBA or lower. Um, there's a company called Lewitt that actually has a microphone called the 550 that has zero dBA of self-noise. The circuitry adds no noise to the microphone whatsoever. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Companies like Rode and Audio-Technica are also known for incredibly low self-noise figures, like 4, 5 dBA. Uh, the microphone itself adds almost no hiss whatsoever. Kind of ironic, though, because then sometimes my clients will be like, how come it's not vibey? Let's add some tape hiss. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> microphone sensitivity is essentially a measure of how well the microphone converts pressure into electricity. This is sometimes called the transfer factor. Microphone sensitivity is listed in millivolts per pascal, where one pascal is the equivalent of 94 dB SPL. So the sensitivity of a microphone is determined by the sum of all parts, the diaphragm type, the size, the electronics, the circuitry. Just because a microphone is more sensitive doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It's just a different sound. Different sensitivities lead to different frequency responses, different transient responses, different output levels, all the above. Frequency response. Now, this is a tough one. Microphone's frequency response is also determined by all factors in the mic's design. It's essentially a measurement of the microphone's ability to capture certain frequencies. To some degree, it's also a measure of sensitivity to certain frequencies, meaning if the response has a high frequency boost, that could mean that it's better at picking up high frequencies or more sensitive to them, but that's not always the case. For example, we talked about how smaller diaphragm mics are typically more accurate in the high frequencies. Well, you can have dark small diaphragm mics and bright small diaphragm mics. The frequency response is, again, the sum of all parts, the diaphragm, the polar pattern, the circuitry, all the above. 
So I wanted to talk about frequency response a little bit before we move on. First of all, frequency response is like a very general static measurement of something that is not static. Okay, the actual frequency characteristics of a microphone change based on proximity to the microphone and directionality to the microphone. You know, frequency response measurements are generally measured at one meter directly on axis. But really, how often are we miking things like this, pointing straight on from one meter? I mean, what does that really tell us? The frequency response also doesn't tell us anything about the dynamic response of the microphone. Does it have a punchy low end or a softer, fatter low end? Does it have articulate highs or smooth highs? The frequency response tells us nothing about distortion or how something saturates. The frequency response is essentially just a measurement taken in a lab with a frequency sweep, much like measuring speakers in a room. It's really only telling you that the microphone has the ability to capture these frequencies, and they're, you know, maybe more or less here or there, but not much else. The frequency response also doesn't tell us anything about clarity. Based on how a capsule in a circuit responds, you can have drastic differences in clarity. You can have the capacity for a full low end, but it may not be a very clear low end. You can have the capacity for a bright high end, but it might be a harsh sounding low end. So it tells you nothing about the quality of the sound, really just the frequencies that it's capable of capturing. It's also important to note that on all kinds of gear, microphones, speakers, anything really, uh, they'll often present this smooth frequency response graph because they use something called octave smoothing to make their responses look more appealing. When a frequency response measurement is taken, it's usually incredibly jagged because it's presenting every frequency recorded with incredible accuracy. In the acoustics world, it's very common for us to smooth to a resolution like 1 48th of an octave. To give you an idea of how fine that is, um, most music that we hear is 1 12th of an octave, meaning 12 notes in an octave, right? Uh, 1 24th of an octave is like hearing the quarter steps between notes. So if a half step is from G to G sharp, a quarter step would be 50 cents above a G. So the note in between a G and a G sharp. 1 48th smoothing is like hearing a G that is 25 cents sharp. So between a G and 50 cents sharp of G. Now, most people, even with a decent ear, can still hear something like this if it's 25 cents sharp or flat. However, many frequency response measurements that you see presented from gear are one-third octave smoothing, meaning three notes per octave essentially averaged. This is unacceptable, in my opinion. Imagine making music with only three notes. Not three chords, three notes, okay? It's crazy but there are really no definitive standards or limits to how much a company can smooth their response. You could effectively smooth your response down to one over one octave smoothing, meaning it averages all the frequencies within one octave, so from 200 to 400 hertz, and gives a single linear representation for that entire octave. That's wild to me. That doesn't tell you anything about how something responds between 200 and 400 hertz. It just says like, ah, eh, on average, it's around here. 
That to me is crazy. I really wish that more companies did a better job of showing one twelfth or one twenty fourth or one forty eighth smoothing on their gear to really show us a better representation of how a microphone handles, say, 250 hertz versus 300 hertz versus 350 hertz. Okay, you'd really want to have higher resolution to be able to see that accurately. It's very easy to show that your microphone or your speaker has a smooth, flat response, but it might be just as jagged and erratic as any other microphone out there. You know, side note, this is one of the reasons I have so much respect for Alex Awana and the team at Audio Test Kitchen, because their microphone frequency responses are much more realistic. They are way less smoothed, and they're much more indicative of our ear's ability to hear these frequencies, which is surprisingly good. They're also not taken from one meter away. I don't remember exactly how far. I think he said maybe 12 or 18 inches, which to me is a much better real, like a realistic placement of a microphone on something than one meter. You know, I don't mic many things from one meter away. It's kind of like I'll either mic them close or I'll mic them far. But one meter is like, I don't know, I might mic some strings or something from that distance, but that's just kind of an odd measurement to me. So go check out Audio Test Kitchen. They've got some better frequency response graphs that are more honest. Okay, so this concludes part one of our three-part series on microphones. Hopefully now you have a little bit better understanding of where microphones came from and the basic elements that describe kind of how a microphone works, why the different elements have different impacts on the sound, and how they all work together to create what we hear as the sound of a microphone. On the next episode, we're going to be talking about our three primary microphone types and some more details on what they're good for, what they're bad for, and how they work more specifically. So check it out. I'll talk to you next time.